Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, you're invited to join our chat room by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. My partner, Ravinder, is here in the studio and monitoring the chat room now and always willing to be uncertain for an hour. So, Ravinder, say hello to everyone and add your thoughts about last week's show. I am always willing to be uncertain, probably because I am always uncertain. Um, last week's show, you know, one of the things that is fascinating me you know, are the number of people we have on the show who are declared atheists, who then talk about the practical value of belief. How, you know, we had s- someone on the show just a few weeks ago too, who said that he would act, he was, he was a psychiatrist mm-hmm. and he would tell people if they had a belief, he would tell them to go back to church, even though he is an atheist. And I find that whole question really interesting, especially for me, because I'm out there searching for the truth of everything. Um, so the answer that it has practical value, it's good for you to believe. You know, just leaves me dangling a little bit. I have to, I have to delve into that one more. I think you know, there's a bit of a dichotomy. There's the intellectual approach where we attempt to discern the nature of being human. You know, where does mind come from? Is it just an emergent property? So there's that intellectual, and then there's that emotional, and that emotional side of us that wants to believe, you know, in an afterlife and that our loved ones uh, go on somewhere else and uh, that divine intervention um, is a real part of, uh, of living today. That emotional side is not always in the same place as the intellectual. I think, you know, I, I, I do believe that they can merge, but I believe that most of the guests that you're talking about have them in two separate compartments. So if, you, if you're if you emotionally invested and you believe that something can happen, well, as you know from the book you're working on on placebo, um, there is a very real healing power there. Whether or not there is a reality, in quotation marks, to your emotional investment. Um uh, so that person who compartmentalizes intellectually and therefore says, well, we can explain everything without positing, and I'm going to follow Occam's razor, it makes more sense to think of it this way than to, to come up with some super being in the sky, uh, also recognizes that individuals who are invested um, gain great value from that investment. I think... Personally, as you know, what I'm working on is marrying the two or marrying the two because they are reconcilable and uh, they are not mutually exclusive as a result. My thoughts. Yeah, I'm, you know, I am just having a hard time with some of that because I have just the, the practical perspective just for me. So if I'm going to be healthier if I believe in God, well, does that mean I don't have a very strong character to be able to do it without believing? If I were an atheist, which I'm not, so it gets kind of, it gets kind of confusing. I'm actually somewhere in I don't think it has to do with being through. healthy on a day-to-day basis. It has to do with, you know, the example you gave. You have someone in the hospital. They may be terminal or they may be very, very ill. And... Uh, you know, we know from the research that there is a great deal of 
strength gained from a collaborating community of friendships and relationships. Um, you know, you want to live longer and you want to live healthier. One of the great pieces of advice today is be involved. Yeah. Um, you know, have lots of friends. Uh, uh, share with others, uh, do community service. Uh, it gives you a sense of reward and a sense of purpose and a meaning to your life and, and da, 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 da. So there, there is literally a lot of research that shows the power of that. What these atheists are trying to say is, well, for me, I don't need that. And I don't think it's a matter of either or, as I said before. Okay. They don't need it until they do. That well, they can have their fascinating. Rela- they it's can have their relationships, but they don't need the the other. Okay. What, what did he call it? The well, something like Superman in the sky. Yeah. Okay. Listen, in this week's spotlight, I'm going to discuss uh, discuss something that's uh, particularly significant to you. It's important to me, uh, but I know it's very, very meaningful to you, and that's animal rights. We live at a time when many rights are hotly debated. We discuss the rights of minorities, the right to life, the right to bear arms, the right of privacy, the right to protest, and so forth, on and on. But in my mind, any truly compassionate person should also be thinking about animal rights. Think about what our animal friends experience. Did you know that 2.7 million animals that go to shelters are destroyed every year? Further, according to Harvard University, approximately 30,000 species per year, about three per hour, are being driven to extinction. Additional facts lead us to learn that, number one, approximately one in 20 motor vehicle collisions reported in the United States involves an animal, one in 20. Number two, there are more than 1.5 million collisions between vehicles and deer each year in the United States. Number three, more than 1 million seals have been killed in the annual seal hunts in Canada alone during the past five years. Harp seals are the primary targets of the hunters. Approximately 97% of the harp seals killed are pups less than three months old. There are more than 1,000 captive animal hunting operations in the United States. More than 100 million animals are reported killed by hunters in the United States each year. The population of wildlife throughout the world decreased in size by approximately 52% between 1970 and 2010. The human population more than doubled in size during that same period. Are you also aware that the worldwide number of animals killed for food in 2000 was 45 billion? This included 306 million cattle, buffalo, and calves, 1.2 billion pigs, 795 million sheep and goats, and 42.7 billion chickens, ducks, turkeys, and geese. Further, despite efforts to improve slaughtering methods by requiring a two-phase process, stun the animal unconscious, usually via electric current, and then kill the animal, this process is not always observed. In fact, it seems it's seldom observed. Several groups have filmed slaughter yards where the animals are deliberately abused while participants mock and laugh at the process. We see more and more labels today assuring us that farm animals are treated well. But when you look behind the scenes, you find this to be false to fact as well. Dr. Temple Grandin makes a point of informing us that labeling is all about marketing, not necessarily the welfare of the animals involved. When you view the big picture, it's no wonder so many people are prioritizing their lives just a bit more around the idea of compassion for beasts, large and small. It's easy to eat that burger when you don't see the full scene involved in the big picture. But when you do, that burger is not so appetizing. Consequently, more and more people are becoming vegetarians. 
It's not some fad. Indeed, the numbers show that both vegetarianism and veganism are growing rapidly. Add to the animal welfare concerns all the emerging benefits behind the whole food plant-based diet, and the momentum for both is accelerating. The fact is, there has been a 600% increase in the number of vegans in the last three years. Further, quoting the Food Revolution Network, quote, plant-strong athletes across many sports are busting myths and achieving unbelievable results. Professional athletes are proving that a plant-based diet can fuel excellence. Athletes in everything from weightlifting and bodybuilding to ultra-marathon running and tennis are being vocal about their love of plant-based eating, close quote. Given everything, I submit that reevaluating what you eat and why is an important aspect of taking responsibility for who you are, what you do, and why. As for me, I'm about 90% vegan, despite those ads I've heard so many times that you're not a man if you don't eat beef. I still sometimes, however, enjoy a little dairy from time to time, and, well, I'm working on it. But I'm much more comfortable when I have the eggs that come from my pretty bride's chickens, for I know how much TLC she gives them. My thoughts anyway, what are yours, Ravinder? You're right. It's a subject that is really important to me. Sometimes I think there's a compassion gene that got turned on in me just a few years ago. Prior to that, I was vegetarian and I thought vegans were just extreme. I thought animals weren't hurt in this process. But then I started doing some research and I discovered, you know, forget about the process of slaughtering the animals. They're basically tortured from conception all the way through. It's horrible. It's nasty. Um, I refuse to be a part of it. Um, but you can take it, you know, there's other ways that you can look at the, the practical side of it. Just as we were talking earlier about the practical value of believing in a higher power well the practical side of turning vegan you know whether it's compassion for the animals or not it's better for the planet takes a whole lot less water Um, you can feed the world with what you can grow there's lots of facts and figures out there so I would urge everyone you know do your research look it up yourself um, and take responsibility for your own life I mean you wouldn't go out and kick the cat walking down the street so how can you eat a burger that is being kicked from conception never mind i will get off my soapbox now thank you (laughs) (laughs) every week i read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful last week our show featured professor clay rutledge and we discussed his work and book supernatural brian wrote lots of food for thought generating type of conversation Beth wrote, religion is a social glue. What an interesting idea. Janet commented, I really enjoyed your conversation with Professor Rutledge. It was very provocative. You should call your show Provocative Conversations with Eldon Taylor. That's an interesting idea, Janet. Linda wrote, I had an experience on the other side two years ago, and I can assure you that the realms are real. Moving on, Millie wrote, over the past several months, I've gone to sleep listening to Connecting with your quintessential self many many nights and of all your inner talk programs this has given me the most wonderful results i would have to say it's life-changing thank you so much for your amazing work that's one of your favorites too isn't it rev mm-hmm. absolutely all right that's all the time i'm going to take for letters today but we do love your comments so please keep them coming you can opine by writing to me at eldon e-l-d-o-n at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on facebook at dr eldon taylor We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, Mindful Compassion, how the science of compassion can help you understand your emotions, live in the present, and connect deeply with others, with author, Professor Paul Gilbert. This is a fabulous book. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Paul Gilbert, Ph.D., is Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Derby, and is a visiting professor at the University of Queensland, Australia. He has researched evolutionary approaches to psychopathology for over 40 years with a special focus 
on self-criticism, shame, and the treatment of shame-based difficulties, especially the depressions and anxieties of life. He was made a fellow of the British Psychological Society in 1993. He has written, edited 22 books and over 300 publications. In 2006, he established the Compassionate Mind Foundation, a charity with a mission statement, quote, to promote well-being throughout the scientific understanding and application of compassion, close quote. All right, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Paul Gilbert. Well, hello, and thank you so much for inviting me onto your show. Oh, it's indeed my pleasure. I loved your book, and, and I want to get, we're going to get into that in a, in a great deal of detail today. But first, Professor, we like to know three things on this show. Of course, what is the message? Who is the messenger? And how do we use it? To that end, what are you personally passionate about, and what led you to writing your new book? Well, interestingly enough, I think you, you touched on some of those themes when you were talking about the uh, plight of animals. Uh, I think uh, we need to move in the world where we become much more sensitive to suffering and the causes of suffering and become motivated to try and do something about it. In essence, that is what compassion is. It's a sensitivity to suffering and distress in self and others with a commitment to try to uh, alleviate and prevent it. So that motivation is really fundamental and I think you were talking earlier also about spiritualities many spiritualities have that at, the, at their core whether you believe in a, a God or whatever at the root of spiritualities is this concern to be helpful to others I think all right you know I enjoyed your book very much um, but I mean some of the book is entertaining to say the least I was particularly I amused by your story of your Tibetan training, and, and we should know a little bit more about you personally, but especially your father's visit. Share that with us, would you please? My father's visit? Yeah, when, you, when you're doing the Tibetan training, and, and your dad says, I've got to have a stiff drink of whiskey. Oh, yes. Okay, well, um, I think that was probably... Um, Choden, that was my colleague. He was the Buddhist monk uh, who, uh, he was South African, and uh, he chose, he did started a deg his degree in law, and uh, then chose to pick, take up Buddhism. And his father was certainly not uh, <laughs> very uh, keen on the idea, I don't think. So he took him to some of the monasteries in South Africa, and that was where that story came from. So that was Choden's story. Okay. I, I, I'm going to ask you this now because it seems so timely. You yourself have had some of that training, correct? A little bit, yes. Okay. So it happened that last evening my wife and I were involved in a movie where Tibetan monks were making a sand mandala. When they finished the sand mandala, of course, what they did was take it apart. And I said to my wife, that would be really, really difficult. And my wife said, that doesn't make any sense. And I attempt to explain to her why they did that. So, <clears throat> Professor Gilbert, tell us the importance of why we need not be attached in order to truly get to a place where we can know peace. Well, in the Tibetan tradition, well, in the Buddhist traditions, and indeed in other traditions, there's a recognition that everything is in flux. The university is in flux. Nothing is stationary. Everything is in movement. Everything is impermanent. So the, the sweeping away of the mandala is really a behavioral confirmation that although this comes into existence, it goes out of existence. And of course, that is our life. Every living thing comes into existence and goes out of existence. Everything we love, everything we feel we can hang on to is impermanent. So the idea of creating and then sweeping away is really uh, homage to this uh, concept of the ever-changing nature of life and the nature of impermanence. And therefore, if you're clinging to things that are impermanent, that is always going to lead to suffering sooner or later. So the idea of this is to um, learn how not to cling to the things like, uh, you know, relationships or whatever. 
All right, Professor. I, I know that you're not in the United States, but United States politics are all over the world. So we had Professor or Congressman Tim Ryan on the show. Um, and, of course, he has a book on a mindful nation. And he encourages his fellow members of Congress uh, to practice mindfulness. If you look at what's going on in our Congress, in our political matters, how mindful do you think they are today? Uh, not very much. <laughs> not very much. Not very much. Not very much. <laughs> All right. Let's get right into the heart of your book. You introduced compassionate um, ideas as a, a specific focus in psychotherapy. What led you to want to do that, and why would that be beneficial? Okay, so um, I, I was originally working with what is called cognitive therapy, and this is a way in which you help people who are depressed or anxious uh, look carefully at the way in which they're thinking and interpret things uh, to stand back and take a different perspective. So you might have somebody who feels that they're a failure and life isn't worth living, but if they stand back, they can realize they have friends and they have achievements and so forth. So what I, what I found during the 80s, late 80s, was that people could generate alternative thoughts, but they would often be very hostile. So they would sort of say things like, well, okay, so I think I'm a failure. But in reality, if I look at the evidence, I can see that I'm not. I've achieved this. For goodness sake, pull yourself together, you know. So I, my, my first point was really it wasn't just how they were trying to change the way they think but the emotional tone of how they were trying to change the way they think. So they could come up with alternative thoughts and be quite logical, but the, the way they heard it in their mind was often extremely hostile. So that was the first thing. We just te taught people how to create a gentle, uh, compassionate voice in the head. So when they talked to themselves and thought about themselves, they tried to create this kind of an emotional tone. And what we found was that many people couldn't do it. Um, they they would say things like, I've never been kind to myself, I don't know how to do it, or if I start being kind to myself, that's weak, you know, it's letting me off the hook, or, well, it just makes me too sad, I get overwhelmed with, with feeling sad when I think about how lonely I am, and so on and so on. So that was really the beginning of how to help people just generate a friendly, supportive, and kind voice in the head, rather than this hostile, critical voice, even when they were trying to be uh, rational with themselves. Uh, and then the next stage really was recognizing that the way we think about things and the kinds of voice tones we create in our head have a, has a very powerful effect on our body. Um, so, for example, if you're hungry and you see a meal, uh, this will stimulate your saliva and stomach acids, but you could just lay in bed and fantasize a meal and it would do the same thing. If you see something a bit erotic, that will stimulate your pituitary, give you arousal, but you could just lay in bed and fantasize something erotic, and that will stimulate your, the same system. So we know that the what we think about and what we imagine can stimulate different systems in our brain. Now, we know that when people get depressed, therefore, their thoughts and focus tends to be on the negative. They tend to be self-critical. They have hopeless views about the future. And so that's going to have a big impact on how their body works. But if we can teach them to switch to compassion and kindness, and we know that that has an effect on the brain as well. Just like having an erotic thought, having a kind thought affects the way your brain works. So over time, if people practice noticing if they're being critical and hostile with themselves and switching deliberately on purpose to creating a more friendly, supportive voice in the head, that actually has a big impact on how the brain and body works. And Professor... Rational emotive therapy uh, doesn't ordinarily include compassion as one of its components. I think that's one of the things that that I found about your book uh, that was particularly uh, interesting to me. Um, but you also differ some in your definition of compassion from many of those that exist out there. How would define for us compassion and and how it differs from uh, other definitions, please. Okay, that's, that's, that's it. I mean, we're pretty standard in terms of the Buddhist definition. There are, as you say, other definitions. Some definitions see compassion as an emotion or a feeling, whereas we do not. We see it as a motive. Now, this is important because all motives have two things. 
there's what we call a stimulus or an activator, and then there's also a response. So if you think about eating behavior, and uh, you experience hunger and you pay attention to what food is, you go looking for food, and, and when you find it, you know how to eat. So if you're a lion, for example, uh, you might see an antelope run by, that's the stick that's the signal that stimulates your desire to go hunting but then you need to know how to kill your the antelope you see so the so the same with compassion so compassion is a motive that means that the stimulus that starts you off is a stimulus of suffering or distress or hurt in, in yourself or others but then you need the wisdom of how to deal with that so if i see somebody fall into to a river and i think i must jump in and save them that would be the first part of it. That would be activation. But then if I can't swim, um, that wouldn't be very wise. So you must have this response of wisdom that goes with um, the desire to be helpful. So those two things, so in our model, those two things are very important. Both we are affected by, we're moved by uh, suffering, and we, and we want to do something about it. But not just anything. We want to learn, we want to study, we want to... Uh, develop our wisdom and our skills to be helpful and this is true for everything if you think about you know doctors uh, they, they want to be helpful and they want to heal the sick but then they have to spend a lot of time learning so compassion is more than just a desire to be helpful it's also the dedication to prepare and practice uh, ways of being helpful all right we've got a hard break when we come back we'll pick it up there um and, and i want to get into uh, Many people, uh, myself included, have, have experienced uh, attempts at mindfulness training only to find we get all kinds of things going on that um, the mind goes crazy. Sometimes we even build resistance when we're doing that. We become more aware of, more aware of our own faults or our, our own self-defeating ideas. And I want to I want to definitely get into that because. I think that's one of the real powers in your book. We're speaking with Professor Paul Gilbert about his work and book, Mindful Compassion. Uh, you can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at compassionatemind, one word, compassionatemind.co.uk. Now we have a video for you featuring an audio clip from his book, Mindful Compassion. So if you're not already in the chat room, now's the time to get over there. And you can do that again by simply going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, my hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Paul Gilbert about his work and book, Mindful Compassion. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at compassionatemind.co.uk. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas and an avocation of mine. Now, our guest states this, quote, Paul was in a rock band in his younger days in the late 60s and wanted to do that professionally, but was not good enough and went to university instead. His first degree was actually economics, close quote. I don't know if he's not good enough. I mean, I I really liked what I just listened to, and it was one of his pieces titled Fascination. So please share with our audience, uh, Professor, the importance of music to you and specifically the piece we played. Well, thank you. Thank you for playing that, Eldron. That's, that's really kind of you. Yes, yeah, so I've, I've always liked music. I think you talked about mindfulness. Music is a wonderful way of learning a certain kind of mindfulness of being fully present in the in the moment and so on and so on. But music has always been uh, very important to me. And uh, so since I was 14, I've played guitar and practiced playing guitar. And uh, it's, uh, it's a completely different kind of thing than psychology and psychotherapy and writing. So it gives me a completely different aspect to, to life, really, which I love. And also, of course, when you do it with other people, that's, uh, that's, that's great fun, too. Well, I found the music nice. And for our audience out there, they can find your music on your personal website. Isn't that correct? That's correct, yes. And it's there free. And, and, that, and that website is paulgilbert.com. Is it not? Yes, prof Paul Gilbert, profpaulgilbert.co.uk. Okay, prof, P-R-O-F, paulgilbert.co.uk. Everybody out there. Everybody out there, go listen. There are some wonderful pieces there. I think he's a great guitarist. Thank you. No, yeah, I mean, uh, I happen to just love jazz. Um, But you can have a couple of things going on in jazz at the same time, as you know, two different kinds of beats. And my my wife won't listen to jazz. Wow. uh, you, you know, we all have our own aptitude, but I do love a good guitar, and your guitar is very good. So Thank you. maybe you were playing rock, and you should have been playing something else. It is great guitar. Thank you very right. much. Why, you know, Professor, why is it important for us to understand compassion as a part of an evolved mind? Okay, so that's a wonderful question because, look, Basically, our minds are full of lots of different motives, aren't they? They, We can have motives for lust. We can have motives to compete. We can have motives to make a lot of money. uh, We can have motives for vengeance. um, So the mind is full of different motivations. And the the motivation that grabs the mind uh, then controls the body and uh, controls our behavior. Now, unfortunately, human history is not great. I mean, if we look back at human history, we can see that humans have a terrible dark side. You know, we go to wars, we we know of uh, Rwanda and the the Roman games and the Holocaust and so on. So if we don't train the mind, the the mind can really do some pretty bad things. And also, not only can it do bad things to other people, uh, and you were mentioning um, animals, uh, early part of your program, that we dissociate from the suffering we cause our, our, our animals um, but we can also do pretty bad things to ourselves so given that the mind can get up to this stuff that we can dissociate from suffering we can put it out of our minds and just carry on regardless compassion is the motivation that will turn that uh, awareness of suffering and concern uh, not to cause suffering it'll turn it back on in our brain. So if we practice compassion, then we're much less likely to dissociate from suffering nor ignore it uh, and rather take action. So when people begin to, as you were saying earlier, very wisely, I thought, wake up to the reality of the suffering of animals, that's the point at which they say, okay, I can't eat meat anymore. I can't do this anymore. And when we wake up to the suffering that we cause with many of the things that we do through our politics, the arms industries and all these things, 
I think people will start to say, "Hang on a minute, we can't we can't carry on like this. We 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 have to find a, a fairer, uh, more caring way of being with each other and creating a world that we all want to live in." Now, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that I consider to be very compassionate about a cause. Earlier in the show, since you mentioned it, you heard Ravinder talk about how sensitive she is. Uh, and, and she referred to it as her compassionate gene must have awakened. Uh, but I've also heard lots of people who just shut down their involvement in the world because they feel too compassionate. The, the world is too full of, of anger and avarice and, and absent gentility. And so they just withdraw. Now, as a psychologist, do you find that there is a negative side to being compassionate? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? I mean, I think that's right um, in the sense that people can become overwhelmed. And part of that is because they see the size of the problem is too big. Um, uh, there's a lovely story about uh, uh, um, a young lady and a, a boyfriend walking along the, the beach and there had been a storm and many starfish had been blown up on the shore and everything, thousands and thousands. And as she was walking along, she was picking them up and throwing them back into the water. And the par her partner said, to her, why are you doing that? I mean, there's so many thousands, you know. And she said, I'm doing it because it matters to the one I pick up. The point about it is it's very easy for us to be overwhelmed that we do nothing. So the way to deal with that is to realize, well, I, I can't do a, a lot of things, but I can do some things. So maybe if I'm just compassionate to my friends, or maybe if I'm just compassionate to the people in the street or the people I meet, or I try as best I can to be helpful, not harmful in my everyday life, if that's all I can do, then okay, I'll settle for that. I think when we try and get into the big picture and then think about the world and so on and so on, then for some people that can become quite overwhelming. And then as you say, they they feel powerless and then they close down. So the, the most important thing is is to focus on the things that are close rather than the things that are distant. The compassion that's close to you in the people that are close to you, begin there and then move out from there. And in that way, you're less likely to be overwhelmed. All right. Uh, Professor, I have to ask you, just as a follow-up on that, I, it would appear to me that... You know, we have some what I think of as compassionate crusaders out there. I'm not sure how compassionate many of them are because where they argue in favor of compassion, oh, you have to be compassionate for this, uh, they can very often turn right around and, and want to be mean and angry with those folks who don't share their interpretation of compassion. Um, What's your take on it? And on, I mean, is it truly compassionate to care enough about a compassionate issue that you become so much of a zealot that you antagonize those who um, don't share your own perspective? Well, that's such an important thing, isn't it, really, that we become frustrated with people who don't. Uh, share our perspective I mean but you have to be careful with this as you rightly point out it's like hitting a child and saying I'm hitting you to show you that you mustn't be aggressive right. <laughs> so, the, so the point is this you know I'm being aggressive non-compassionate to you to show you how important compassion is so I'm treating you very non-compassionately to show you how important compassion is so it's a very good point I think the part of it what happens is that you see, this is where the whole Buddhist issue comes, that it gets associated with clinging, you know, that it becomes a source of an identity. I am this person, I am this compassionate person, and therefore you have to see the world like me. So, and that when you adopt compassionate values that way, it's like a political value, you know. If you don't, if you don't agree with me, then you're against me in some way. So the key thing about compassion is that not to take it as an identity. It's not about an identity. It's about how we choose to live our lives and how we treat each other. It's not something you defend and you compete with and you bash people on the head who don't agree with you. It really is a, a deep understanding about the desires not to be uh, harmful and to be helpful, not to be harmful. Uh, and that includes when people disagree with you because the strongest forms of compassion are at the edges. They're at the edges of the conflict, you see. It's easy to be compassionate to people who like us and get on with us and agree with us. 
But the, the best compassion, the strongest compassion, the most revolutionary compassion is in those areas of conflict, in those areas of darkness. That's when compassion really comes to the fore. It, what comes to my mind, I guess, and, and it prompted by that response, Professor, is, uh, you know, let's take a villain. In, in this country, probably the number one villain that everyone can identify with would be Adolf Hitler. So we've heard some people called Nazis uh, because that's as demeaning as um, a term as you could actually label someone with. Are you saying that we should be or feel compassion for Hitler? Yes, absolutely. And it, the point about compassion is it's not submissive, right? It's not saying to Hitler, oh, well, look, we have compassion for you. Here's a ticket, go to the Bahamas, have a nice holiday. The most important thing for Hitler, someone like Hitler, is to realize that he has a brain that in, will entice him to do the things that he's doing. And if you're to help him, then he absolutely must be stopped, okay? Because he's not able to stop himself. So we have to stop him. So it's an understanding that some individuals are kind of really trapped in the dark side. And when that happens, uh, uh, you, 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 you try as best you can to stop them. The, the most important thing is for oneself, however, is to stop him out of compassion rather than vengeance. Because if you stop him out of vengeance and hatred, then you have got caught up in the dark side yourself. So it's not about whether we should stop people like Hitler. We certainly should. And uh, people who are harmful, we certainly should. Um, but the point is trying to recognize that very few people wake up uh, and decide to be psychopaths. I mean, children, when they're three or four years old, don't think, I know, I could be a nice person, but I'm not going to be. I'm going to be a psychopath. So <laughs> we know that as a result, partly of background and partly of genes, uh, people just become, enter into these patterns. And when they do that, then they can be extremely harmful. And therefore, the compassionate position is to realize that they may well be out of control, and therefore we have to take action to try to stop them from behaving badly, but not out of vengeance and, uh, and rage, but out of you know, compassion that, unfortunately, uh, we have to take these actions. Gotcha. Uh, so if I'm understanding you correctly, and don't let me interpret what you said incorrectly, please. The compassionate aspect of being compassionate with a suicide bomber or an Adolf Hitler is selfish. It's actually uh, more healthful for you to find that uh, place than it is to deal with it in total resistance. You know, the anger and the and, and animus, etc. Have I got that right? I think you have. And I mean, the key point about this, right, is to is to I mean to the the, the, the most important thing of compassion the most important part of compassion is courage right so if you think of a fire firefighter going into the burning house to save a family uh, there's only one thing they're doing there there's only one reason they do that and that's because they want to save that family that is a compassionate act but you have to have a lot of courage to do that people often think compassion is all about kindness well that's one way of being compassionate but courage is the core of it and what we're called on here for is to have the courage to look into the dark side of humanity look you know 2000 years ago we had thousands and thousands of people going to the roman games they loved watching people getting slaughtered now were they all psychopaths no i don't think so that was their culture so right. we have to understand that we have a, a potentially really nasty side to us and therefore have to work out how we can contain that and therefore, it, say like with suicide bombers and so forth, we have to try to understand the causes. What is it that creates suicide bombers and doing the best we can to cut off the breeding grounds for suicide bombers, bombers as best we can, that's the first thing. And also uh, ensure that we fund our police uh, and surveillance uh, uh, services so that they are able to detect these people before they take harm, right? But again, not because out of vengeance and rage, but out of professional uh, recognition that some people, unfortunately, do get caught in the dark side, and when they do, uh, we have to find them. So the key thing is the motivation for working in these areas is this recognition that, unfortunately, uh, humans can do some very bad things indeed, and we have throughout history. 
uh, and it's a great tragedy. But that compassion is the courage to look at the dark side and to remember that we all have the potential to be like this. Uh, and it's not just good people, bad people, but this this can live in all of us, unfortunately. I mean, we often use the example like, you know, if I had been kidnapped as a three-day-old baby and brought up in a violent drug gang and was beaten and saw violence and so forth, this version of Paul Gilbert wouldn't exist. A totally different version of me would exist. I, I'm only a version of myself as a result of my background, right? A completely different version would exist, somebody who would be potentially quite violent and so forth. Now, I don't like to think about that, but that's the reality. And compassion is the courage to realize that all of us have the potential to turn bad. Uh, there's a wonderful book by a guy called Philip Zimbardo, one of your great psychologists who's in uh, California called The Lucifer Effect. And he looks very much into how you can get good people to do bad things. Right? We know this has happened in Rwanda and in the Bosnia and you know, in the Balkans and so on and so on. So um, the key thing really is uh, for the compassionate to address the dark side is to realize that unfortunately, it's not just that there are good people and bad people. It's unfortunately that we do have a dark side, and it's about how we contain that and constrain it and uh, work to stop that if we can. Professor, we're short on time, and I have so many more questions here, but I want, I want our audience to get out of this. How do you go about training yourself with to be more compassionate? Uh, is this a mental skill? Is this something you do with mindfulness? Uh, what would you tell our audience? Okay, so that's great. So there are a couple of things like we can suggest for you. Firstly, very, very quickly, then, there are body states that will help you with compassion. And the, the, one of the body states is learning to slow down, basically, which is what you partly do in, in um, mindfulness. But your autonomic nervous system has two branches to it, a sympathetic and a parasympathetic. And when you slow your breathing down to, say, five breaths per minute, and you focus on slowing the sensation of mind slowing down when you breathe out, you will start to stimulate what is called the parasympathetic system. And this, using these breathing exercises as slowing down, being so rather than your mind racing from one thing to another to another to another, just practice breathing, slowing the breathing down in the diaphragm. This can help you. So that's using the body to help the mind. Then the next thing really is orientating your mind to choose how you want to live and to choose that wherever you can, you're going to try to be a person who will be helpful, not harmful. And wherever you can, to be mindful of when harmful thoughts and feelings arise, what the Buddhists call unwholesome, because they will when you have arguments with people or you want to throw your shoes at the television or at the politicians. Um, so you'd be aware that we can have streams of harmful thoughts and harmful feelings, anger and rage and injustice and frustration, all that stuff. So the idea is that by learning to notice when you're becoming aroused or upset or whatever, to take a breath, slow the breath down, ground yourself in the body, refocus on your intention. Your intention is to as best you can to live your life by being helpful, not harmful, and constantly focus on, okay, so if I was at my compassionate best, if I was at my wisest right now, if I was at my strongest, my wisest, my most courageous, how would I like to be? So you create this idea of how you would like to be. Because all of us have the wisdom inside of us, but we often don't tune into it. You know, when we get angry, we just let anger run the show. When we get anxious, we let anxiety run the show. But if you become mindful and you become aware that you're becoming angry or you're becoming anxious. This is the time when you can then say, okay, I can see what's happening in my mind. So what I'm going to do now is just going to slow myself down, slow my breathing, ground myself in the body and really think, okay, this is a difficult situation. If I was at my wisest, my most courageous and my most compassionate, how would I really like to deal with this? And if you practice that over a period of time, it's quite amazing how much that actually does change the way you live your life. Professor, like I said, I've got so many more questions. I, I wanted to get in more specifically to the nature of what you call mindfulness of the chaotic mind. I wanted our audience to be informed, you know, about how uh, my compassion can, can end self-criticism. Um, and I'm just going to have to leave it at this. There, Listen, audience, there is a marvelous book full of explanations, resources, exercises, 
by Professor Paul Gilbert titled Mindful Compassion. Go get a copy. Professor, in 30 seconds, please tell our audience how they might learn more about you and get your book. Well, I think you've done a brilliant job, Eldrin. I mean, uh, going on to the, if you go onto the website, there are many things on the website. There are many. You can download a lot of exercise, breathing exercises, compassionate exercises, how to work with self-criticism, how to create a, a feeling of safeness and so on. So that's probably, as you said very kindly, that's probably the best opening starting point for you and then there are the books we've also got a new book which is called living like crazy that book talks about how modern society is driving us all nuts and what we can do about it so it's been a delight talking with you Aldrin, and uh, i wish you and your audience well well thank you very much sir it's been our honor indeed i appreciate your work i love your book i recommend it to everyone Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.